June's Journey is a fascinating hidden object mystery gaming app where you'll play as June Parker, tasked with a daunting obligation, solve your sister's murder. Set in the 1920s, the era of glitz and glam, this family mystery is one for the ages. Everyone's a suspect until your investigation determines otherwise. The clues are all around you, hidden within tricky twists and turns. You'll collect detailed information about each character in your photo album where you'll comb over every detail. You can even join a detective's club to chat and play with others or against them in the detective's league. With hundreds of puzzles to solve, you should probably get started today. Discover your inner detective when you download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Audible is the destination for thrilling audio entertainment with highly anticipated new releases. The time is now more than ever to embrace the breathtaking, sinister, and shocking tales that can enthrall you, especially with brand new exclusive thrillers from best-selling authors who are guaranteed to keep you gripped, like Amy Tintera's Listen for the Lie. With exclusive thrillers from best-selling authors, captivating sound design, and dynamic performances, Audible brings these stories to life like never before. And as a member, you can choose one title a month to keep from their entire catalog. New members can try Audible free for 30 days. Visit audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. That's audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. I'm Margaret Brennan in Washington, and this week on Face the Nation climate change, the global economy, and war in Eastern Europe all come to a head as President Biden prepares for an overseas summit with NATO allies. Record-breaking heat is driving Americans to seek cooler temperatures. Even President Biden hit the beach over the weekend to recharge before he left for Europe. Climate change is just one of the challenges facing the world. We spoke exclusively with Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen from Beijing about her efforts to lower tension between the world's two largest economies, even as trade disputes ramp up. The war in Ukraine reached the 500-day mark as President Biden made what he called a difficult decision to send controversial cluster bombs to help defeat the Russians. Delaware Democrat Senator Chris Coons and Ukrainian Ambassador to the U.S. Oksana Markarova will join us. Plus, we'll take a look at a new push by the nation's governors to help children's mental health with Utah's Republican Governor Spencer Cox. Finally, after a brutal week of blistering temperatures, can it get any hotter? The answer is yes. NASA's chief scientist, Kate Calvin, will be here to explain why. It's all just ahead on Face the Nation. Good morning and welcome to Face the Nation. We're going to take a closer look at the brutal heat that has settled in across the country during a later point in this broadcast. But this spoiler alert, the extreme weather is expected to intensify. Another issue that's heating up, trade disputes between the U.S. and China. 
Janet Yellen is the second cabinet secretary to make a goodwill mission to Beijing in the last few weeks. We spoke with her exclusively before she departed China. At the top of your meeting with the Chinese vice premier, he actually acknowledged one of those awkward moments. He, he mentioned the Chinese spy balloon. He called it an airship. Can you say at this point that tension has been smoothed over? Well, what I can tell you is that um, I had um, a very constructive visit. I received a warm welcome and had very substantive series of meetings. We had substantive conversations about the global economy, developments in our own economies, financial markets, and a list of concerns that each of us brought to the table that um, we agreed to follow up on over time. Understood. Uh, the U.S. ambassador to China, Nick Burns, told me just last month that four or five different American companies had been experiencing intimidation at the hand of Chinese authorities, and he pointed towards an espionage law that had recently been rolled out. Did you get assurances that American firms won't be intimidated? Well, that certainly is one of the concerns that I expressed. Um, I had the chance to meet with American businesses and to hear about their concerns. But uh, and certainly in my meetings, that is a concern that I raised. It's something that we will have further conversations about and try to address over time. The administration has taken some targeted national security focused uh, measures that do impact trade and the economy, um, including some restrictions on high end technology sales. The administration is reportedly also considering restrictions on computer chips related to artificial technology and cloud computing. Do you have a sense of what the retaliation will be from China when the U.S. does this? Well, um, an objective of my trip was to explain that national security is something that we can't compromise about and we will protect and we will do so even if it harms our own narrow economic interests, but that when we take such actions, which do have an effect on the Chinese economy, um, that we will make sure that they are transparent, narrowly targeted, and well-explained. And um, this is a point that I tried to make in my conversations with Chinese counterparts. I would point out that the Chinese also uh, protect their own national security through export controls and other similar devices, including controls on outbound investment. Um, I explained that um, President Biden is um, examining potential controls on outbound investment in certain very um, narrow high technology areas, and that if we go forward with these, that um, they will be indeed very narrowly targeted and um, not, sh should not be something that will have a significant impact on the investment climate between our two countries. You're talking there, I think, about the uh, long-delayed executive order that would put some restrictions on what American companies can do when it comes to investing in China. Um, is that still in question? Right. Did you hear anything in your meetings that would make you 
tweak it, change it, pull back from it? Well, mainly I try to explain what it is that we're contemplating. It's still something being discussed in the administration, and the timing of it is not is not yet certain. Does that mean there's a chance that the Biden administration will drop it, that they won't issue this executive order? Well, no final decision has been made, but um, as I've said previously, this is something we're looking at very carefully. You, you did mention there an action China just took in regard to export controls, meaning they, they have this stranglehold on a lot of critical minerals and they just blocked the export of two of them that are really essential for uh, computer chips. How should people understand yes. this? Is, is this a warning shot? Is this Beijing saying, look at what we can do and if you take further restrictions, we'll ramp it up from here? Well, I I certainly express concern about this action and um, contrasted it with the actions that we've taken. Um, Our own actions are narrowly targeted to address national security concerns. And um, it's not clear that the actions that the Chinese took Um, are similarly narrowly targeted at their national security concerns. So this is an area that I expressed concern about. Do you mean, are you suggesting there that it was just a retaliatory action? Well, potentially. Are are you concerned that this is the beginning of an escalation? Well, my purpose is to make sure that we don't engage in a series of um, unintended escalatory actions um, that will be harmful to our overall economic relationship um, with one another. And we have had very little contact, both senior officials and also just the American people and the Chinese people have had very little contact with one another over the last several years, in part because of COVID. And that's a situation where misunderstandings can develop. We have a new team uh, on the economic side in Beijing that it's important to establish person-to-person relationships and to open ongoing channels of communication where concerns can be aired and discussed. And I do think my trip has been successful in forging those relationships and um, creating the opportunity for a deeper set of more frequent contacts uh, at our staff levels. I was just in China. I know how much concern there is there about the slowing of the economy. Um, Are you concerned that the slowdown in China will have a negative impact and drag U.S. growth? Well, that is a topic that I discussed with my Chinese counterparts. We talked about the policy actions that they think um, see as appropriate to stimulate their economy and promote what they describe as high quality growth. And um, I was able to better understand uh, the actions that they do think are appropriate. How significant are the problems in the Chinese economy? You know, I, I think that They've opened up their economy following um, its closure from COVID and um, are working through a series of issues 
relating to issues in the property sector in real estate um, and consumer spending there has rebounded a little bit less. Consumers are showing more caution and saving, saving more than many uh, commentators expected, many economic forecasters expected. But um, my counterparts talked about their perspective on this and the actions that they're taking. Before I let you go, I do want to ask you about the economy here at home. Um, what signal should Americans at home be looking for to understand that economic growth will be back at a point like it was before the pandemic? It's my hope that and belief that there is a path to bring inflation down in the context of a healthy labor market. And the data that I've seen suggests we're on that path. The jobs number did suggest a little bit of a slowdown there. Is the risk of recession completely off the table from your point of view? I mean, where do you put the odds? It's not completely off the table, but um, we would expect uh, with the job market as strong as it is now to see a slower pace of ongoing uh, job gains. Um, prime age labor force participation is at the highest level in several decades. So we've seen this strong job market attract uh, workers back to it. Um, but uh, is, is that stabilizes at a high level, we should expect the monthly job gains to be coming down toward a more normal level. And you can see our full conversation with Secretary Yellen on our website or our YouTube channel. We turn now to Delaware Democratic Senator Chris Coons. Good morning. Good to have you here. Good morning. Great to be on set with you, Margaret. A lot to talk about, but I want to start with China. Uh, America's reliant on its greatest adversary for key things, for missiles, for computer chips, electric vehicles. Do we need a domestic industrial policy, and why don't we have one? We do have one. Margaret, that's what the Chips and Science Bill that President Biden signed into law last year that the Congress moved forward on a bipartisan basis has delivered. Tens of billions of dollars of new investments in onshoring semiconductor chip manufacturing. A record number of new advanced manufacturing sites in the United States. There is more work for us to do on this in this Congress. And Senator Schumer and Republicans in the Senate are leading work on that. So we have turned a corner on having an industrial policy in the United States that brings back manufacturing. That's the core of Bidenomics, of rebuilding our economy from the middle out. But what we were just talking about, the Treasury Secretary, is August 1st, China's going to stop the export of key minerals. So to make those chips, you need what China has. That's right. So where do you get that from? So China is in a commanding position on the processing of strategic critical minerals. The administration has a plan, has a, pro has a program underway with a dozen countries around the world that are our allies and partners who have untapped resources. I was just on a bipartisan trip to Europe. We visited Norway, which has critical minerals in abundance, several of them that we need, that China currently has. There is a plan and a path forward. And as long as we sustain our bipartisan support for it, I think there is a clear path to transition away from what is currently a dangerous dependency on China for these strategic minerals. I want to ask you about Europe. 
President Biden is leaving today on this trip that will involve a stop at NATO. I know that you have signed on to efforts um, to help Sweden get into NATO, but Turkey's standing in the way. You've said you're fine with withholding F-16s, those kind of military uh, equipment provisions to Turkey until they back down. Are they going to? We'll have to see. President Biden is directly, personally engaged in this diplomacy. Um, the Greeks need and deserve um, security reassurances um, that the lessening of tensions with Turkey will continue. Um, we are continuing to provide uh, cutting-edge uh, equipment like the F-35 to our critical NATO partner, Greece. As long as Greece is reassured, Sweden has taken the steps they should to address Turkey's legitimate concerns. I remain hopeful that there will be a resolution of this before the Vilnius summit. We have 31 members of NATO today. There should be 32. Adding Finland and Sweden to NATO is a strategic defeat for Putin. It means that no matter the outcome on the ground in Ukraine, he has failed in his objective to divide and weaken NATO. Because of President Biden's leadership, NATO is the strongest it's ever been. You have another applicant, Ukraine. As you know, Uh, the president gave an interview in which he said he doesn't think Ukraine is ready to join NATO. Uh, Have you talked to him about it? And what specifically is it that he needs to see for them to be allowed in? They've been waiting since 2008. Well, first, we can't admit Ukraine to NATO right now. There's a war going on that has to be resolved, that has to end with Ukrainian victory. I was just on a bipartisan trip, as I mentioned, um, with Senator Murray, chair of appropriations, to meet with EU leaders and NATO leaders. It's important to keep in mind that what the Ukrainians are fighting for is full membership in Europe. And they are on track to join the EU. Joining the EU also means improving their transparency, their rule of law, their civil society, which lays the foundation for NATO membership in the future. Well, President Zelensky has said he knows it's in the future. It's not drawing the United States into a war, in other words, if he were to get in this week, which the White House said he won't. But um, the president also said something about an Israel-style assurance of defense for Ukraine. That sounds very open-ended. We give billions of dollars to Israel. What does that mean for Ukraine? Well, there has to be a security guarantee for Ukraine going forward. For them, For them to be conceivably admissible to NATO, um, their equipment, their training, their, their military has to be up to NATO standards. And we are moving them in that direction. But I'll remind you, back in 1994 in Budapest, the U.S., U.K., and Russia persuaded Ukraine to give up their nuclear weapons in exchange for a commitment to a territorial security guarantee. Some sort of security guarantee for Ukraine has to be on the far side of this war where so many Ukrainians are fighting and dying bravely to push back out the Russian aggressors who are occupying 20 percent of Ukraine today. But you don't expect any firm assurances out of this week's summit? No timeline, no specifics? That's a decision for 31 NATO members to make. Um, My hunch is they'll make real progress on Sweden accession. Mm -hmm. They'll make real progress on sustaining our critical support in the middle of this counteroffensive. But I don't think they'll leave Vilnius with a specific timeline. Um, President Biden said that Ukraine's military is running out of ammunition, and that was a factor in his decision to greenlight providing cluster munitions. Do you think that morally justified his decision to do this? I do. This was a very hard decision. The president really, he listened to all sides. Did you Um, speak to him about it? I did not speak directly to him about this decision. I weighed in indirectly through folks in his core team. But bluntly, 
he looked at several different core factors. First, we are running out of 155 artillery munitions, mm -hmm. and they are burning through them at a remarkable rate, six to 8,000 a day. That's a million a year. We have a plan to bring back online the manufacturing of 155 shells at scale, but that won't happen for months. They are at risk of losing this counteroffensive if they run out of their shells. We have a large stockpile of 155 shells that are cluster munitions. Mm -hmm. It's the Ukrainians who are asking to be able yes. to use these on their own soil. They've committed to monitoring their use, to remediating them after the war. And frankly, they will be tactically helpful against dug-in Russian troops that are behind large minefields. So weighing all of those factors, the president made a tough call that I will support. You will support. Um, I want to ask you as well about Iran. Uh, the president's envoy to Iran, his name is Rob Malley, yes. um, and he told CBS that he is on leave right now pending a review of his security clearance. He's so central to the nuclear talks and also the point of contact for the hostage families. Um, have you been briefed on what's happening? I have not. Uh, on, on his a, security situation, I have not. Because on, in your key role on Senate Foreign Relations, I would yes. imagine there is some oversight. There is some reporting that the FBI is now involved. Are, are you concerned? How should people understand this? Look, I can't share anything about the FBI and what they are or are not doing with regards to the special envoy. Um, but there is a lot of concern and interest in Congress on that committee and others about the status of any potential negotiation with Iran. The Iranians are providing the Russians critical drones and munitions for their aggression in Ukraine. Mm -hmm. I think that puts even greater tension on any possible conversations between yeah. the United States, our regional allies, and Iran. And I do think we need a briefing to update the members of Congress. On, on this matter, as well yes. as the talks. Um, do you think that the president should meet with the families of those hostages in Iran? They have been asking for some time. Um, look, you know, I'm an advocate for the hostages, uh, broadly speaking. Jason Rezaian, who was held in an Iranian prison for more than 500 mm -hmm. days, came home and received an IRS bill in the mail as a result right. for unpaid taxes. I just introduced a bipartisan bill um, to get rid of those uh, undue, unexpected, unreasonable um, harms. Um, mm -hmm. Yes, I think the president should meet with hostage families. He has a lot on his plate. He has been a strong advocate for recovering Americans from overseas. As you know, um, his administration led the return of Brittany Griner. I am hoping um, that there will also be some movement uh, in the case of a Wall Street Journal reporter who is mm -hmm. unjustly imprisoned in Russia as well. Evan Gerskovich. Evan Gerskovich. Do you have reason to believe that that is moving forward? I have reason to believe the administration is working tirelessly on trying to return all Americans who are unjustly detained. Senator, thank you for your time this thank morning. You. Face the Nation will be back in a minute, so stay with us. Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress-them-on-the-third-date guacamole? Well, good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are. They find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line. They are milk expiration date detectives. They bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are. So let Instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink what you'll wear on that third date. Download the Instacart app today to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. Let's talk about my mochi ice cream. Why? 
because friends do not let friends miss out on something this good. My Mochi is premium ice cream wrapped in sweet soft dough, and the flavors are amazing. Like My Mochi double chocolate with rich chocolatey bits, it's a chocolate lover's dream. Or don't get me started on My Mochi strawberry ice cream. It's cool, creamy, and bursting with natural berry flavor. And the sweet, luscious flavor of My Mochi mango will send your taste buds straight to the tropics. My Mochi is gluten-free, perfectly portioned, and only around 90 calories per piece. Taste the joyfully chill sensation of My Mochi ice cream today. Find My Mochi at Walmart or visit MyMochi.com to locate a grocery store near you. Now to the latest in Ukraine. Senior foreign correspondent Charlie Daggett is in Kharkiv with more. This morning, a tribute by President Volodymyr Zelensky and Polish President Andrzej Duda in western Ukraine. Marking the World War II massacre of tens of thousands of Poles at the hands of Ukrainian nationalists, now united in memory of the victims. Zelensky marked day 500 of the invasion yesterday in a visit to Turkey to bring back home the commanders of Ukraine's Azov Brigade. Having surrendered to the Russians after the siege of Mariupol, under a deal they were to remain in Turkey until the end of the war. Instead, a hero's welcome ceremony in Lviv and a vow to go right back to the fight. The specter of a major nuclear disaster has reemerged at the Zaporizhian nuclear power plant, both sides accusing each other of plotting to attack it. Ukraine says Russia is exploiting the threat as a deterrent to the counteroffensive, which has become a relentless grind against an entrenched enemy. Commander Stanislav tells us it's been tough. The enemy doesn't sleep. In the year or so that they invaded us, he says, they have learned how to fight. It's one reason Ukraine requested the controversial cluster munitions to help break through Russian defenses. But Ukrainians know firsthand the devastating effect they have on the civilian population. The prosecutor's office in Kharkiv has collected a mountain of Russian missiles and rockets allegedly used against civilian targets here. And we're told this is one of many Russian cluster bombs found here in the Kharkiv area. As it descends, it opens up, ejecting smaller bombs, expanding across a wide area. They're the same kind of weapons suspected in yesterday's shelling in the eastern city of Lehman. At least eight civilians killed, many more wounded. Those cluster munitions will likely come up among NATO partners in Lithuania this week. As for Ukraine, they're obviously hoping for continued support and ultimately a path toward NATO membership. Margaret? Charlie Daggett, thank you. Welcome back to Face the Nation. We turn now to the Ukrainian ambassador to the U.S., Oksana Markarova. Great to have you back with us. Good morning. Uh, your president and our president said that Ukraine's running out of ammunition. So how quickly will this latest U.S. package arrive and how quickly will it make a difference? Well, first of all, let me say how grateful we are to President Biden and to everyone for making this decision to provide us with this munition. I know everyone is discussing how difficult it was and sometimes even call it controversial, but there is nothing controversial about it. We are fighting on our territory, brutal enemy. There is nothing worse than... Uh, tortures, rapes, and everything that Russians do 
on the territories they occupy and we need to liberate as quick as possible. So we are really grateful that in times when we do need increased numbers of munitions to support our counteroffensive, that U.S. made the decision, and we really hope we will see it very quickly on the battlefield. So these cluster munitions drop bomblets, um, and sometimes those bomblets don't explode right away. And years later, they can be a danger. I've met victims who've been blinded and maimed in places where the U.S. dropped these decades ago. So when the White House says that Ukraine has made assurances on how it will use these, how do you do this and assure that civilians won't be hurt? Well, first of all, let's remind where we start with. Ukraine is the most mined country now already. Russians mined uh, everywhere. The unexploded ordinance is everywhere. So we're doing a lot of demining. And U.S., by the way, is helping us a lot in demining already now. With regard to these munitions that we will be getting from the U.S., uh, first, they are of a much higher quality So to start with. And second, as responsible as we are with all other American-supplied or European-supplied munitions, we are controlling it. We we have a very uh, responsible ways. We use the NATO type of log-fast system to record every unit that we have, where it is. Mm-hmm. We will use the same type of approach to this. We will know where we use it, how we used it. And, of course, you know, every time we liberate our territories, these D-miners are the first people that go there, try to make sure that the the area is safe. So we will do exactly the same. And I imagine Russia uses these on civilian areas. I have to imagine Ukraine has pledged not to do that and only to use them on soldiers. Oh, my God. They use uh, this and phosphor and everything else specifically on civilian areas and destroying civilian areas. We definitely will not do, we will not use it in civilian populated areas. Um, That's the war crime aspect that that Russia has been criticized for on this. Um, When you heard President Biden say Ukraine's not ready for NATO membership, what did you think? Uh, We are getting ready for NATO membership. Uh, We know and we're doing very difficult reforms, even as we fight for it. What we are definitely ready for is for invitation. And I think, you know, with regard to uh, the NATO membership, if you look at uh, any any uh, aspect of it, Ukraine is very ready in a number of aspects. And if there is something that is left there, we can sure do it uh, later on. But we are discussing now about the invitation. You know, you know that in 2008, the uh, open door policy towards Ukraine have been adopted. Uh, we want not only the door to be open, we want to be invited to come in. Well, the White House seemed to close the door on that part of the invitation, at least, but eventually allow for Ukraine to join NATO. That was that seemed to be the signal White House was sending on Friday. Well, the discussions are still ongoing and the discussion. And of course, it's the discussion that requires 31 countries to agree. Uh, and again, as uh, you, you know, with like with the European Union uh, membership, there is a path towards the European Union. We are a candidate country and we are working towards our full membership. Similar approach uh, we take with NATO. We want to be in NATO. The majority of Ukrainians support Ukraine in NATO. Uh, this is in our constitution. And we have done the majority of reforms already to be NATO eligible. We are ready to continue on that path. And we would like to see that our friends in NATO uh, are together with us on this path. Uh, This week, the largest nuclear plant in Europe, once again, was very much in focus on the front line of this conflict. Um, Your president says 
Ukraine has intelligence showing that Russia will try to blow it up, that it has mined the area. The U.N. watchdog says they've only been able to search parts of the area. So far, it looks okay, but there are two key reactors they want access to. What is the level of risk right now? The level of risk there is consistently high since March 4th, 2022, since Russians illegally occupied Ukrainian nuclear station. Mm -hmm. So we just have to be very clear from the start every time we discuss the Parisian nuclear plant, the largest nuclear plant in in Europe that the only source of risk there is Russia. Uh, You add to that Russia's absolutely irresponsible withdrawal or uh, suspension of the New START treaty, their decision to deploy uh, the tactical nuclear weapons in Belarus, and it's clear that we are dealing with a nuclear terrorist. Now, look at Chernobyl station, which they also grabbed since they invaded us in February 22. As soon as Russians are out of there, there is no risk. Similar here, we all have to work together to get them out. Because again, let me remind you about the Kahovka Dam destruction, which Russians did, knowing how devastating it will be. So the the intent, and there is no uh, red lines for them there. We just have to stay focused and get them out from the station. As soon as it's in Ukrainian hands fully again, there will be no risks. Does Ukraine support what the UN's calling for, which is, you know, sort of a safe zone around it so that Ukraine isn't shelling in the area and neither is Russia? Look, all Ukraine should be demilitarized from Russian military. So we have to get them out from everywhere in Ukraine, uh, not to allow them uh, create some safe zones for them inside Ukraine. We are very responsible, as you have seen during all this period, towards the nuclear Zaporizhia nuclear station. But the only answer to uh, that problem is no Russians there. It's Ukrainian territory, it's Ukrainian station, and there should not be occupiers, brutal occupiers there. We will be watching what happens this week at NATO. And so good to have you back with us, Ambassador. We'll be right back. Say goodbye to performance-robbing engine deposits with Shell V-Power Nitro Plus Premium Gasoline. Hate to break it to you, but lower-grade fuel can leave deposits in your engine that build up over time and leave your engine's performance severely lacking. Thankfully, Shell V-Power Nitro Plus removes up to 100% of performance-robbing deposits with continuous use in gasoline direct injection engine fuel injectors. Download the Shell app today to find your nearest Shell station and rejuvenate your engine with Shell V-Power Nitro Plus Premium Gasoline. Fuel up at Shell. For 149 years, ADT has made the security of their customers a top priority, so you can have peace of mind that your home is protected. Now ADT professionally installs Google Nest products to help keep your home safe and smart. You'll be able to check in on your home and manage your security system from virtually anywhere. Plus, with Nest Cams and the Nest Doorbell, you can get intelligent alerts, so you'll always receive notifications on what matters most. When the most trusted name in home security adds the intelligence of Google, you've got a home with no worries. Go to ADT.com today or call 1-800-ADT-ASAP. Google Nest Cam and Nest Doorbell are trademarks of Google LLC. ADT. Brilliantly safe. We turn now to the Republican governor of Utah, Spencer Cox. Thank you for being here. Thanks for having me. It's good to talk face to face. I know you're on this coast because of the National Governors Association and meetings there. And the group's putting some special focus on mental health, but broadly protecting kids. When it comes to children, 
firearms are the leading cause of death among kids. The Salt Lake City Tribune pointed out that at the state level, there's been an impulse to danger to ban dangerous things for kids on many levels. You've talked about social media. Uh, you focused on transgender issues. But that doesn't extend to firearms, even at the state level. Why is that? When you look at the gun numbers in the state of Utah, mm -hmm. the, those numbers increasing are not being driven by people getting caught in the crossfire or you know kids shooting each other. It's being driven specifically by mental health and suicide issues. Now we're doing more to, to help keep guns away from kids, keep them locked up. But but what is it that's that's driving that desire to say life is not worth living anymore? And and how do we as a society collectively uh, work to make sure the kids know that it is going to get better and, and uh, there there is a reason to stay here. That's a huge focus for us as well. Your state is the first, as I understand it, to restrict social media access by minors, although that law doesn't go into effect until March of next year. Correct. Um, you just had this judge this week um, make a, a determination that the Biden administration uh, should be prohibited from discussing with social media companies anything that encourages, pressures or induces in any manner the removal, deletion, suppression or reduction of content. Is that ruling going to affect what you are trying to do at the state level to protect young kids from harmful content? I don't think so. I, I don't understand. That, that's, that's more of a content restriction. I'm sure we'll have social media companies suing the state of Utah. In fact, we're going to be suing social media companies for, for the harm and damage that they're, they're causing our young people. I, I suspect that at some point the Supreme Court will weigh in on this decision when it comes to restricting youth access. There's not just a correlation between social media use and an increase in, in suicide, anxiety, depression, self-harm. Um, th there is a causal link there. There are 18 different states that have now enacted laws that restrict in some way access to gender transition care for kids. In Utah, you have said that you are just pausing access to that kind of care. You're not banning it. Do you have an end date to that pause? What specifically is the kind of data and research you need to see to say you will allow for it? Yeah, so we, do, we don't have an end date, um, but uh, we... we we do need more data and more information. This is such a charged topic it is. that it's been uh, it's been impossible, I believe, to get good information um, here in the United States right now because half the country doesn't want to touch it, and, and the other half is convinced that they already know the answer. And so I, I've really tried to look elsewhere um, at, at conversations that are happening in other countries, um, specifically in Europe, around around this where it's not quite as charged. Um, looking at, at at Sweden and Finland and and France and, and the UK, uh, other countries where they don't have the same culture war battles that we're having here. And they're also pushing pause. I, I mean, many of those countries are saying, look, we're this is specific part of it. Is on it both. hormone treatment, puberty blockers, surgery? Both, all of, it, all, of all of the above, yeah. Because the yeah. Uh, American Medical Association, the American Psychiatric Association, the American Academy of Pediatrics have said this kind of care um, they've rejected the claims that it is yeah. harmful. Yeah, all but very political not, groups. And, and again, I, I, I don't. I, I believe that they are politicized. Those groups are politicized. The I American don't believe, Academy of Pediatrics. I absolutely okay. do. Yes, yes. On, on this issue, it, it, it's impossible to get unbiased information out of the United States right now on this issue. I, I just don't believe it.
So just on the numbers, of 73 million children in the U.S., there were just 56 genital surgeries related to dysphoria between 2019 yeah. and 2021, according to the study by Komodo Health and Reuters. Yeah, do you have the numbers on uh, on on hormone therapy and 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 in those puberty years? blockers? What, in what the is past the number? It, it, they're you. exploding. We we went from like 10. 10 years ago to several hundred this past year. Mm -hmm. I mean, those numbers, and again, this is in Utah alone. Yeah. You don't know what's driving. Well, that's, that's what these scientists in other countries are actually trying to figure out where in, in the United States, we're putting our head in the sand and saying, we're not even going to talk about this or look about this. You can't even have a discussion about it. In other countries, they're saying something is happening. Hundreds in my state, thousands all across the country um, that are making requests for this. And they have, they're, they're presenting with several several other mental health issues as well. I mean, the numbers we saw, the trend is definitely up, but um, they're still pretty small in terms of surgeries and mastectomies. But, o- but only I, I in terms of surgeries. Data. Yeah. The, the other data, and, and you can look anywhere, yeah. um, this is not unique. Um, it, it, yes, there the aren't a lot of surgeries sure. happening, but the trend, it's not just up, it's up exponentially. It's, it's, it's a hockey stick increase. It, it, it's still a small percentage, though. Um, but but I hear your point on wanting more data. Can I ask you specifically about a bill um, that is now law? That it, it, you had an interesting stance on this. You rejected the bill initially. Your legislature overrode your veto. It's now law. Um, and it would bar transgender students from participating in uh, girls' sports. According to the reporting at the time, there were just four transgender players in the entire state out of 85,000 student-athletes. At the time, you argued for empathy when you vetoed this. You said there are these are just four kids trying to get through the day. Rarely has so much fear and anger been directed at so few. Why didn't that call for empathy persuade your party? Why did they need to write something to affect four kids? In my veto letter, I, I said I, I actually agree with what you're trying to accomplish here. I, I think it is wrong to have a you know a, a, a transgender female, um, a person who was who was born a male, uh, taking scholarships to, records uh, away from people. The, 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 the pen swimmer is the, the example of that, right? Okay. The example that everybody uses, and I, and so that that was my point. I, I, that should not happen. What we were negotiating in the state of Utah was something that would allow some kids to play and others not to, depending on their their physical capability. I do believe that there is a, a lack of compassion and empathy in our politics today. Mm-hmm. Um, we are we have a toxic division. The culture wars are happening. Um, there are culture warriors on all sides that are you know trying to change, trying to get their way, trying to cancel others or or prevent others from from being able to to do what what they want to do. And 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 it's definitely a problem. I'm I'm, I'm hoping that Utah can be an example of of being a little better on that side. There are at least six current or former governors, Republican governors running for president right now. Can any of them defeat Donald Trump in a primary? Well, I, I will, lead your party. I hope so. I like governors. Um, I think governors are great. I Even think governors have real experience. Um, the, the great thing about governors is we actually have to get stuff done, mm-hmm. right? We, we can't just do the performance thing. Um, you have to, you know, potholes aren't, aren't partisan. Um, right. you, you, have to, you have to do those kind of things. And I think we have lots of amazing choices. And um, I'm, I'm really hopeful that we can, we can turn the page um, and, uh, and, and, and try something else. Someone who can win, which I think is important, 
And uh, I think any of any of those governors uh, could, could win. And, and I certainly hope we'll give them a chance. Governor, thank you. I'm glad to have you here in person and uh, hope to have you back. Thank you. It's been an honor. Thank you. We'll be back with a lot more Face the Nation. Stay with us. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Last week saw four days of record temperatures, and this week is expected to be even hotter. We now want to welcome to the program Kate Calvin, NASA's chief scientist and senior climate advisor. Good morning. Good morning. Um, I'm excited to be able to ask you some of these questions that I think a lot of people are wondering this week in particular. Um, Why is the weather so extreme? Can you explain that? for non-scientists? Yeah, so climate change is driving increases in temperature overall. We also have natural cycles that affect temperature, and so the one you're hearing the most about in the news is El Nino or La Nina. So El Nino years tend to be warmer than La Nina. Uh, 2022 was a La Nina year. It was actually the the warmest La Nina year we've ever had. Um, It was tied for fifth warmest overall. We're now moving into El Nino. So the combination of climate change and El Nino means we're seeing higher global temperatures, and that brings with it impact all around the world to people, ecosystems, extreme events, and other um, changes that are that were that are impacting communities. So, uh, ocean temperatures are rising, as I understand it, and that factors into this. Can you explain how? So oceans absorb a lot of heat. And so we are seeing um, increases in ocean temperature. Um, When we identify El Nino, it's based on ocean temperatures in a particular part of the Pacific. But the thing to keep in mind is, you know, oceans are actually, land is warming faster than oceans. So the places where we live are warming faster than the ocean. So while we are seeing these increases in ocean temperatures, we're also seeing increases in temperature over land. So NASA has been doing these reports where you're, you're crunching some of the data to understand how to plan going forward. Um, I was looking at one of them. It says there's going to be severe turbulence with airlines over large regions of the northern hemisphere. Are we already seeing that? And why would that happen? So we are experiencing impacts of climate change everywhere around the world right now. There's different impacts in different regions. I think what's important to keep in mind is that climate change is more than just temperature. It's also affecting things like the water cycle. So we're seeing more heavy precipitation events, more droughts. We're seeing increases in extreme events like storms. And we can see those and those impact uh, how we travel, uh, human health, agriculture, and all aspects of our lives. With the 
claims. It, how certain are you that this will happen or is it already happening? So there's studies that indicate that you can see increases in turbulence linked to climate change. Um, at NASA, some of what we do around aircraft, we have a large aeronautics research team, but we're looking, we look a lot at how um, transportation affects climate. So not just climate affecting transportation, mm. but also how it affects it. And so we do a lot of research into making planes more efficient so they use less energy and generate less emissions and contribute less to warming in the future. So there are also transportation issues along the Mississippi River mentioned in the report. Uh, cargo shipments have been impacted by river levels. So how do industries who have to plan ahead and businesses that have to plan ahead take this into account? How prepared are we? <laughs> So one of the things that we work on is trying to make sure people have access to the information that can support planning. So for river flow, we actually launched a satellite in December um, called SWAT that's going to give us the first global survey of water running through rivers and lakes. So we'll be able to see how much water is running through those rivers and how that changes over time. And that kind of information can be used to better plan in the future. And so NASA would share that? All of our data is publicly available, and one of the things we're working on now is making it easier to use so that you don't have to process raw satellite data, but instead we give you an indicator that you can interpret and use in your planning. Um, so as an example, we have a tool that's uh, designed for farmers that helps them understand how much water their fields are losing so that they can better plan their irrigation. Um, NASA also put out a report in May that says climate change is contributing to a rise in Lyme disease, possibly, um, more mosquito-borne illnesses as well. Seasonal allergies are getting worse. I know plenty of people who are complaining about their allergies these past few weeks. My eyes were watering. Um, how concerned do people need to be? So there are a lot of effects of climate change on health. Um, so uh, in terms of mosquitoes and other uh, uh, diseases that are carried by um, insects, what, the climate, what climate change can do is change where the, the geographic extent of those species. So, you know, mosquitoes need hot conditions. They need water to breed. And so what climate change can, can do is change that extent so that we see um, in places where you have malaria, it could shift more uh, northern latitudes or higher altitudes. But there's other effects of climate change. You mentioned pollen. One of the things that we saw here in the northeast of the U.S. recently was about wildfire smoke. Mm -hmm. So there were wildfires burning in Canada, and the smoke from that came into the U.S. and led to air quality concerns all across the northeastern U.S., and we'll see more of that with climate change. More of these fires. Uh, we'll see ones. more. So what climate change brings is more fire weather, um, so conditions where it's hot, dry, and windy, more fuel for fires, so more dry vegetation that can burn um, and can also lengthen the fire season. So we're seeing all of those changes. What we're trying to do, though, is make sure people can be prepared for it. And so see, right. we can see where fires are burning now. We can see burn scars and burn perimeters. We can look at how emissions from fire move around the world. Well, and that's what's interesting is that this isn't just admiring the problem you're coming up with. Here's something you can use to plan for this scenario. But some of it sounds like a science fiction movie in terms of fear. There's something in here about frozen Arctic soils unleashing ancient microorganisms. Has that happened yet? <laughs> so, uh, you know, in the far north um, of, the, of the world, the soils store a lot of carbon and, um, and there's methane underground. And so as that thaws, scientists are, uh, expect that you would see some more emissions associated with it. Um, so that as you warm, you couldn't trigger more emissions. Um, and that's what's driving the warming that we're seeing now is greenhouse gas emissions. So things that affect um, those emissions will affect climate. And you're going to continue to make this publicly available? All of our data is publicly available, and we continue to add to it. So we're uh, able to observe more about the planet and help people better pre prepare for the future. All right. Well, thank you. Thank you. For breaking it down for us non-scientists. I appreciate it. We'll be right back. 
We don't usually put in a plug for rival broadcast networks, but we can't resist this one. Tune in tonight to cheer on our own Gail King and her family. Yes, that's them. They're appearing on Celebrity Family Feud tonight at 8 o'clock. And of course, tune in on Monday morning to CBS Mornings, where you normally see Gail tomorrow and every day. That's going to be it for us here today. Thank you for watching. Until next week. For Face the Nation, I'm Margaret Brennan. Today's guests were Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen, Delaware's Democratic Senator Chris Coons, Ukrainian Ambassador to the U.S. Oksana Markarova, Utah's Republican Governor Spencer Cox, and Catherine Calvin, NASA's Chief Scientist and Senior Climate Advisor. The executive producer of Face the Nation is Mary Hager. This broadcast was directed by Shelley Schwartz. Face the Nation originates in CBS News in Washington. For more Face the Nation, we're online at facethenation.com, and you can follow Face the Nation and CBS Radio News on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. Face the Nation is also rebroadcast on our CBS News streaming network on Sundays at 1.30, 4, 10 p.m. Eastern, and again at 4 a.m. the next morning. And it's available through our apps, CBS News and Paramount+. Plus. Hey everybody, John Stewart here. I am here to tell you about my new podcast, The Weekly Show. It's going to be coming out every Thursday. So exciting. You'll you'll be saying to yourself, TGIT. Thank God it's Thursday. We're going to be talking about all the things that hopefully obsess you in the same way that they obsess me. The election, economics, earnings calls. What are they talking about on these earnings calls? We're going to be talking about ingredient to bread ratio on sandwiches. And I know that I listed that fourth, but in importance, it's probably second. I know you have a lot of options as far as podcasts go, but how many of them come out on Thursday? I mean, talk about innovative. Listen to The Weekly Show with Jon Stewart wherever you get your podcasts. Always on the go. Now you can take CBS Mornings with you. Wake up to your daily dose of news and interviews with today's leading figures in politics, business, and entertainment in the CBS Mornings On The Go podcast. It's available every weekday wherever you get your podcasts. For more than two centuries, the White House has been the stage for some of the most dramatic scenes in American history. Inspired by the hit podcast American History Tellers, Wondery and William Morrow present the new book, The Hidden History of the White House. Each chapter will bring you inside the fierce power struggles, the world-altering decisions, and shocking scandals that have shaped our nation. You'll be there when the very foundations of the White House are laid in 1792, and you'll watch as the British burn it down in 1814. Then you'll hear the intimate conversations between FDR and Winston Churchill as they make plans to defeat Nazi forces in 1941. And you'll be in the Situation Room when President Barack Obama approves the raid to bring down the most infamous terrorist in American history. Order The Hidden History of the White House now in hardcover or digital edition wherever you get your books.